Welcome to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast series on improving outcomes in immune thrombocytopenia. This is the second of two podcasts and will focus on novel therapies and factors to consider in the selection of therapy for ITP. I am Christopher Nelson, a nurse practitioner from the Avira Medical Group Oncology and Hematology Department in Aberdeen, South Dakota. I will be your moderator for today's episode. Joining us today is Dr. Haney L. Samkari, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. This program is supported by educational grants from Novartis and Dova. This program is provided by Practicing Clinicians Exchange for 0.25 ANCC and AAPA credits per episode. To receive credit for this program, go to pce.is forward slash ITP. The learning objectives are that at the conclusion of this podcast, you will be able to describe novel therapies for management of refractory ITP, risk factors to consider in the selection of therapy for ITP. All right, so let's start with a case scenario. You have a 62-year-old who was first diagnosed with ITP a few years ago. Initially, she responded to corticosteroids, but her disease has relapsed. Uh, how would you proceed in this case? Yeah, so this is a very, very common question because most of our adult patients with ITP who are initially treated with corticosteroids will ultimately relapse. About 80% of patients do not have a durable remission after first-line treatment. And so uh, we have a number of options. So we can think about the thrombopoietin receptor agonists. There are three drugs in this group. So there's L-trombopag, which is an oral thrombopoietin receptor agonist, uh, avatrombopag, another oral drug, and ripleston, which is a subcutaneous injection. And L-trombopag and avatrombopag are given daily. Avatrombopag can actually be given less frequently than once daily in certain patients. Ripleston is given once weekly as a subcutaneous injection. So we have, so the, so the thromboproceptor agonist is one option. Second class to think about uh, is the spleen tyrosine kinase inhibitor, fostamatinib, which is also FDA approved. All of these drugs I've mentioned so far, FDA approved to treat ITP. Then we have an off-label therapy that has a lot of high-level data, a number of years of data, uh, really uh, decades of data to support its use, which is rituximab. And we have splenectomy, right? So splenectomy, if we look at the American Society of Hematology guidelines, splenectomy is listed as a second-line therapy. Now, we generally recommend avoiding a splenectomy uh, whenever possible within the first year after diagnosis of ITP, because we do recognize that some patients, there is a real spontaneous remission rate in that first year, and we really try to avoid uh, doing a splenectomy you get the occasional patient that just says, I cannot, I don't want any of these medications. I really, really don't. Can we please just you know, remove my spleen? Two thirds chance, you know, if done in that first year in the early line setting that, that that splenectomy will result in a durable cure. Some folks really just want to try that. In that setting, it's a rare patient, but it happens. And, you know, one could consider an earlier splenectomy. But again, the guidelines really do suggest wait a year. So when we talk about our, our medical therapies, so thrombopoietin receptor agonists are really optimal for patients who don't mind taking a chronic therapy who like a high response rate, right? So when you want, these drugs have, you know, 70, 80% response rates in the second line, really, really high response rates. They're really well tolerated in general. Most patients don't have any sort of what I would call nuisance side effects. You know, they don't get nauseated or have GI upset or anything like that. Occasionally, you get headaches with these drugs. Most of the time, those headaches are pretty easily treatable with like some over-the-counter acetaminophen, and it's, it's really not a problem. 
Rarely, you can get severe headaches, in which case you just switch to a different class of drug. Among the thrombopoietin receptor agonists, we have L-trombopag and avatrombopag as our oral, oral agents, as I mentioned, rimplostim as subcutaneous drug. And we think about the pros and cons of each of these agents. So, you know, L-trombopag and rimplostim have been around for over a decade. They have a very uh, well-established safety profile uh, in that setting. Obviously, L-trombopag is oral, which is a benefit over uh, potentially subcutaneous injection. L-traumapeg is associated with approximately 10 to 11% rate of hepatotoxicity. That sometimes gets better when the dosage is reduced or the drug is discontinued. And then L-traumapeg has dietary restrictions. You really can't have any uh, meal that contains much in the way of divalent cations like calcium or magnesium, which isn't a lot of food. Dietary fat also presents problems with L-traumapeg absorption. So really, patients have to have a four to six hour fasted window around taking L-trombopag. One issue that comes up is it can be challenging to maintain this dietary compliance for months and months and years and years, which patients are often on, on this drug for. So avatrombopag is newer thrombophoric receptor agonist that is oral, uh, but unlike L-trombopag does not have the issues related to hepatotoxicity that's been reported or dietary restrictions. The downside for the sort of con for avatrombopag is that it's it's the new kid on the block. So we don't quite have as long a safety follow-up with the drug, uh, you know, approved for ITP back a couple of years ago. We expect that many of the side effects here are are more class effects, but there are some that are unique, like, for example, hepatotoxicity for for L-trombopag. So it's something that, that we think about. People ask about myelofibrosis or the risk of leukemic transformation with these drugs. And really, that's been evaluated in a number of studies. You know, the, the rate of marrow fibrosis that actually causes any sort of clinical problem is extraordinarily low. Patients don't need bone marrow biopsies to monitor their use over time or anything like that. And even patients with MDS who are receiving these drugs actually don't have a substantially increased risk of progression to leukemia, which, you know, is very, very reassuring. It can make blast counts go up, but when you stop the drug, the blast counts go back down. So. We should talk a little bit about rituximab. Rituximab has about a 50 to 60% uh, response rate in ITP at the, in the second line, which is pretty good. The issue with rituximab, and, and it's nice that you don't have to take a chronic drug and you might get a, a good amount of time out of that rituximab with the patient has normal platelet count. Couple issues with it. If patient is, patient is a little bit more anxious, rituximab maybe not the best because they don't really, they're not taking something every day they know is working to treat their disease. And they could have that recurrence at any time uh, is one issue. And, and we know rituximab really isn't curing very many people or putting many, very many people into a, a, a long-term remission. We have some good data, five-year follow-up, only about 20% of folks are still in a remission. And that's basically the rate that we see with sponta- you know, spontaneously without any treatment. So rituximab works, but you know, it's sort of a longer-term Band-Aid for most patients. And lastly, let's just talk a little bit about fostimatinib which is an oral op- another oral option. Fostimatinib is a spleen tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It's, again, a newer drug in terms of we think of you know, longer-term safety profile. Unlike the thrombopoietin receptor agonists, which have a theoretical thrombosis risk, fostimatinib does not have that theoretical thrombosis risk. So it can be helpful in patients that have a known history of thrombosis, for example. The response rate's not quite as high as the thrombopoietin receptor agonists, and there are Perhaps more nuisance side effects, things like increased blood pressure, diarrhea, some kind of some, sometimes skin uh, issues like rashes. But 
it's certainly an option and something that that can be considered, especially in folks who uh, have a thrombosis history who want an oral treatment option. You know, you, you went over a lot of different uh, options there. So we've got a lot of different things that we can choose from. So we're definitely including our patients in the conversation uh, about this. So what are some strategies that you can suggest to your patients to improve shared decision-making and help with managing their condition? Yeah, that's a great question. So all decision-making and, and second-line ITP treatment is shared decision-making. Now, their insurance might restrict access to certain things, right? In which case, makes it less of a decision and perhaps more of a dictum, but we should always approach it uh, as though we're trying to find the best treatment that fits that patient's needs and is is most likely to to control their disease well. So different drugs have different costs, and that that often comes into play with the insurance company sort of dictating what they may not have access to. We always talk to our patients about you know their preferences in terms of taking the drug every day. I alluded to a lot of this earlier. You know, uh, patients who really feel they can't handle dietary restrictions around taking a drug, that their L-traumapag is really not the best drug for them. Patients who maybe have a thrombosis history, probably best avoiding thromboport receptor agonists and maybe opting for something like rituximab or fostimatinib, a more immunomodulatory type drug. And then there are some patients, like I said, that, that really just hate taking medication and want, they would opt for a surgical option, in which case we have to consider splenectomy in those folks. The reality is that a lot of our patients are kind of cycling through these treatments, right? So they might try one, it doesn't work, so we go to another one. Every time that happens, we have a conversation. The patient community in ITP nowadays, they have really excellent support groups. There are now actually phone apps that can help them track their disease. Uh, you know, so they're often a very savvy uh, group of patients and you know, have kind of have a sense for when they bleed and what they are willing to do to avoid that. One other thing that I will mention here just briefly, because we always focus on bleeding. ITP is associated with other issues that are related to quality of life, reduced quality of life, like fatigue. Fatigue is actually the second most common symptom in patients with ITP after bleeding. And then anxiety and depression, right? So if you if you wake up every morning and you're you're scared that you might have a, a platelet count crash and be in the hospital for two weeks because that's happened to you four times already in the past, right? That can have a major impact on your psyche and your ability to, to function uh, anxiety-free. So it's important to ask patients these questions. It's got to be a part of the conversation about treatment choice, right? So if somebody is really anxious about their disease, maybe the case, and they have you know, demonstrated bad disease in the past. It may be the case that a drug like remiplistim, which lets them get their account checked every single week as they come in and get their injection, is actually really optimal choice for that person because it treats both their disease and their anxiety. You know, we have patients like this. They they want to know. They they're willing to come in, spend a couple hours every week getting that platelet count, waiting for the result, getting their remiplistim injection, and that is really important for them. And they wouldn't switch to anything. They don't mind coming in and getting a subcutaneous shot. So I'll conclude just by saying that, that there are clinical trials ongoing now for additional treatments to add to our armamentarium. Already, we have an embarrassment of riches compared with you know just 10, 15 years ago, and that may increase further with additional drugs that are in clinical trials right now. There is a complement inhibitor called sutimlimab that's in clinical trials. That's an infusion that may be able to raise the platelet count in just a few hours. 
which would be wonderful as a rescue drug for our patients potentially. There's another oral drug called rilzabrutinib, which is a BTK inhibitor. And folks who take care of patients with lymphoma will be familiar with this class of drugs uh, from caring for lymphoma patients. And rilzabrutinib is a BTK inhibitor in development for ITP that doesn't increase bleeding risk uh, by poisoning platelets like the other uh, BTK inhibitors do. So definitely some interesting stuff in the pipeline and excited to, to see how those drugs ultimately pan out. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Al Sankari. That was very informative. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast on novel ITP therapies and considerations for individualizing treatment. Please visit pce.is forward slash ITP to take the post test and claim your credit for this activity. 